Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the queen of all HBO shows, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me are my two co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And the King B. The things we do for love. And this is our fan mail episode where we look back on this week's Game of Thrones and provide our feedback on the top listener emails and voicemails for the week. This week's episode was entitled A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. You've listened to us all week. Now it's our turn to hear from you. Last week, we had 60 emails to read through, and we appreciate all of your participation. This week, it more than doubled. So we've been reading them all week. This is much like Hard Home, where the, the wave comes over the hill and it just starts spilling. So it's at least 140 this week. Thank you very much for writing, and we appreciate it. Great stuff. Keep them coming. And, you know, last season, I was a stickler for doing 10 emails only. Then you and Raj talked me up to 15. I think one time we did about 20, and I was like, never again. We're only <laughs> doing 10. But there's so much good stuff that this week we actually expanded the ceiling beyond 20 plus voicemails. So we're going to get through them as quickly as possible. As a reminder, all of these can be found at shadontv.com. You can read all these emails in their entirety, even ones that didn't make the podcast. And we will make an effort to respond to every single one. Also, some of the ones that appear on the podcast will be truncated for length just so we can get as many in as possible. So without further ado, Big D takes us to the small council. Shame. 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 All right. And our first one comes from an old friend and longtime listener, Gillian. She writes in, instead of focusing on the fact that we saw... Aria when she was 14 and she grew up before us. Let us remember how old Danny was when we saw her fully naked and being raped by Drago in season one. No qualms there about her age, but okay. Can we focus on what they were showing us? Her scars. Gendry has been walking around teasing her like he used to, but everyone from Sansa to John to the Hound and Gendry all still look at her as a child because she was everyone's child, including the viewer. But when she took off her shirt, I was shocked. I knew she was hurt by the waif. We all saw the stabbing and the slicing, but the impact on Gendry's face, like, oh, wow, fuck, she wasn't kidding. She's seen shit. She's been through some shit. This wasn't a leech on your cock kind of thing. This was a left for dead and stitched back together, and she's back here looking death in the face. No, she isn't a child. No, she isn't a little girl. No, she isn't a lady. She's a fighter. And that comes from Gillian. Yeah, Gillian, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a person, a character who's really had to grow and she's turned into something that, you know, we haven't seen up to this point. Uh, I hang out a lot at a comic book shop and so I'm really familiar with fans and and fantasy and how they relate to it. And I think maybe as fans, we should kind of look at how we feel about it. I think that we have this desire that things never change, that they always stay, uh, how we fell in love with them. And that's just not what we're getting here. We're getting a life story. And to hopefully to put this to rest, the question of of seeing Arya nude and people being uncomfortable, I would feel equally uncomfortable if there was a brand love scene where he was able-bodied and he was up. And it's not about the nudity of a male figure, because I didn't even care when Hodor was out there naked at the Godswood swinging it around early in the show. It happens to be that it was a child. It's not the sex. We knew them as a child, watched them grow up, and then to see them nude was a bit odd. I don't care if it's a boy or girl. That's what it was. Thanks, Gillian, for your email. Next up, we have Dallas Wilkes. And Dallas writes in, At its core, this episode was about wrestling with mortality. 
You had all these characters that we've invested in for years all coming to grips with the same thing. Tonight might very well be my last night alive. And we get a chance to see how the different characters try to come to process this notion. The show does a great job of showing us the range of responses from reflection to optimism. You see the stoicism of Brienne break when she's given the one thing she's wanted. You see Arya's desire to experience life before it's gone. Tyrion's optimism, Sam's melancholy reflection, Jamie and Theon's attempts at redemption, and even a bit of denial from Sansa are all raw responses to their mortality. Coming to terms with our own mortality is something that we see today. It's the aging parent transitioning to hospice care. It's the mother of two being told she has cancer. These same moments happen in our world now, and the responses are the same thing we saw last night. This was the first episode where I felt that the entire episode elicited those emotions. It was easy to put myself in the shoes of Grey Worm as I tried to give hope to the person I loved, or Theon as I tried to sacrifice myself to ease a heavy conscience. There wasn't magic or dragons or anything else to pull me away from those emotions. They let us sit in these feelings for the entire hour, and just like the characters, we had to make peace with the fact that tomorrow everything will change. Thanks for the continued commentary, guys. Dallas Wilkes, PhD. I, I really like the analogy to to a, an older parent in hospice. This is the last time we're going to see these characters, our loved ones. We're saying goodbye to them. And it's going to make next week losing presumably many of our characters who have finished their arcs. And without this episode, I don't know that it'll have that gut punch, but it was nice to be able to say goodbye to them in a way that showed respect to the characters, to the story. And other than just throwing them into the battle, having them die, it wouldn't have that emotional impact. Great email, Dallas. Uh, next up, we have one from Cassie. And this one is about the scene between Sansa and Daenerys, which we didn't really reflect on that much in the deep dive and is kind of a unique take. She says, hi, guys. I was a little surprised at your interpretation of the Danny and Sansa scene, as it seemed to be very calculated strategic conversation from both sides. Danny's whole speech about how much she loves John and how he made her come to the North seemed very forced. It seems like Danny walked into the conversation thinking she could easily manipulate Sansa by appealing to her love for her family and flattering her. I honestly believe that the only reason Danny truly is in the North is because she's too smart to risk sacrificing the lives of everyone because it means she would have nothing to rule at the end of it all. I've rewatched the scene a couple of times, and while I do think that Danny manages to grab her for a moment, Sansa is too smart to be pulled in that easily. She mentions that the North wants to Starks it from the Union because she knows that this will immediately show where Danny's loyalty lies. If she truly felt as deeply for John as she says she does, giving the North back to the Starks wouldn't really matter. Danny was too calculated when she walked into the conversation and underestimated Sansa, and Sansa was ready to call her out on it. I think that saying that Sansa is stupid for asking Danny about the North is an interpretation that only works if you believe Danny was being sincere, though I truly believe it was an act. Can't wait to hear your opinions throughout the week. Keep up the good work, Cassie. And I believe Cassie's referencing Big D to the conversation that we had about Daenerys and Sansa, in which you said that why would she pull a confrontational note right at the last second? I don't think we were saying that she was stupid per se, but rather that before this battle where you need everybody to be on the same side, maybe not the right time to be having the conversation about what happens to the North in the end, because regardless of what Daenerys says, whether she says you can be free or you will bend the knee to me, it doesn't matter. You still got to fight the army of the dead. 
You know, it also could be uh, sort of a knee-jerk reaction. Sansa has put her trust in people a handful of times up to now and really paid the price for it. She might find herself sort of being wooed by Danny's overtures of, of kindness and familiarity, then realize what letting her guard down has cost her in the past and realizing, no, I need to be on guard. I need to start thinking about my people right now. And as a closing note, Cassie, I'm glad you brought up Sansa because she is definitely an asset to the North. I said this earlier, she's got her head on straight. She's the one thinking about Winterfell and the welfare of her family. And that will be important down the line. I guarantee it. Next up, we have an email from Joanna, and she's writing about an interview with Macy Williams, who plays Arya Stark. She writes, so I know people are really upset about the Arya and Gendry scene, and I just wanted to point out in an interview that Macy Williams gave, she says that the costume designers basically bound her breasts and added padding to her stomach for several seasons to keep her young and prepubescent looking, though she herself was developing as a woman. We see her as young because that's who the showrunners wanted her to be for so long. I also want to point out that if Ned and Catelyn had lived, they most certainly would have married her against her wishes, probably very young, and she would have had plenty of sexual experiences that weren't her choice. She wanted this. She asked for this. She is living her life on her terms, and I think she should be applauded. It's Joanna. There was also a tweet from from Maisie, and she said, if you feel uncomfortable, just know that my mother, my stepdad, my two sisters, and my four brothers have probably watched this too. Kill ha 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 ha. And that was on her official Twitter page. I thought this was fascinating. I didn't know that they were binding her body. And it makes a lot of sense because I think all of us watching and millions of people around the world were like, isn't she a little kid? And now knowing that it's intentional again, just speaks to the level of detail that Game of Thrones employs when they're putting this together. And uh, it means that that impact was intentional. So I feel a little less bad about it. No, and there, and there was even the actor who plays Gendry. He said it was difficult for him because she was 13 years old when they started filming. And to now be in a lovemaking scene with her, he said it was very, very odd. So it wasn't just the viewers who felt a bit uncomfortable. Next up, we have an email from Miles from Somerville, Alabama, and he's writing about Arya's weapon. Miles says, hey, guys, so there's been a lot of buildup surrounding a mysterious weapon that Arya would wield this season, with one of the prop makers going as far as to call it a showstopper. But what we got was a double-edged pole staff? Am I justified in being genuinely bummed? Am I missing something? Or does a deadly secret lie beneath that boring design? Also, who gets taken out with Arya's new toy? Love you guys. And that's Miles from Somerville, Alabama. So I think everyone is just assuming that it's the spear. When they were in the library of Winterfeld and they were planning out the strategic uh, different components of how they were going to defend Winterfell, they noticeably left out the dragons. They didn't even address them. I would not be surprised if the actual show-stopping weapon we have not seen, and it is some combination of a scorpion that is a dragon-taking-down device. I don't think it's that little spear. That's that's not exciting. Yeah, that's the part of the blueprint that you didn't see. If you undo that scroll a little bit more, it says dragon-taker-downer <laughs> right at the bottom. They missed that part. I had just assumed that it was going to be a double-edged spear or a, a staff. It probably breaks a half in the middle on purpose. And maybe the hound flicks her up into the air and she lands on a dragon and kills it that way. It's in the anime edition. 
Uh, thanks, Miles, for your email. Uh, next up, we have a repeat one from Matt Barger, who wrote into us before to correct me when I called Small John Umber Ned Umber. He says, hey, guys, thanks so much for adding my email to the show. Super cool. I wanted to echo what you were saying about the audiobooks. Roy Dotris, who does the recordings, also gets a cameo as the creepy pyromancer in season two when he shows Tyrion the wildfire cache, but I digress. He says the names in the audiobooks in the funniest ways, like you mentioned. Brian, Varis, but also not sure if you've gotten to how he talks about Baelish. He says Petire in the weirdest way. Also, Melisandre is Melisange. My <laughs> wife and I crack up over it. And how the character's voices change from book to book is confusing. My favorite voice he does is Dolorous Ed. Anyway, thanks again for reading my email. Can't wait to hear the Instacast. Seven blessings, Matt Barger, Hard G. Like Gendry. Well, in the recording of the deep dive, Gene actually brought up the fact that I might have a head injury because my pronunciation changes mid-sentence. I could say a character's name three or four times, and the pronunciation will change three or four times. Yeah, I'm absolutely shocked that we haven't gotten any emails or voicemails about <laughs> Donnie, you know, John <laughs> Snow, and the love of his life, Donnie Targaryen. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember saying. She's that. from South Boston. Thanks, Matt, for your email. Next up, we have Holly in Sicilia, Italy. And Holly writes, why didn't they include dragon plans in their roundtable battle talk? I felt it a little odd they wouldn't discuss their most important weapons while going over their battle strategy. They mentioned them and their presence, but I was hoping for details. Did you guys also catch the post-sex look on Arya's face? It didn't look like afterglow to me. What's going on there? I'm pissed that they brought ghosts back without a backstory. <laughs> Love the podcast. Thanks for keeping it real and giving this show what it deserves. And that's Holly in Motta Santa Anastasia, Sicilia, Italy. Well, Holly, I want to start. Let's work this one backward. Uh, you were pissed that they brought ghosts back without a backstory? Regularly in the book, ghost just kind of goes out hunting and stuff. Do you want... Like, what backstory was the what dire wolf having? Uh, he went out, he went to college, he got a degree, uh, he came back, and now he's going to be their their master of aeronautics? I, I don't know. As for the look on Arya's face, uh, I agree. It didn't look like Afterglow. It almost seemed like she did it out of duty, and it kind of echoed a lot of the things that Ned Stark would say, and it's a very stark thing to do. And I'm left wondering if it wasn't so much lust, or it might have been a combination of lust and maybe a look toward the future for why she slept with Gendry. Or it could just be the fact that she wanted to experience that part of life. She did, and now all she has to look forward to is death. I think that in the medieval times, I think that you know, common folk, sex was probably not, it was a bit of a disgusting thing. Gendry's been in there, he's working all day, getting a big sweat. You know, hygiene wasn't that important. I can imagine after sex, you would want to get far away from your partner. I think it would be contrary to her character, but possibly it's a tactical move. She knows that now he's the bastard son of Robert Baratheon, who was the last legitimate or relatively accepted king. There's a possibility that Daenerys and Jon aren't going to be able to father a child. I don't know if Sansa's able to carry a child. She might be the last one left, and this is just her thinking, well, this is my plan to keep my family's in the limelight in the future. It goes against her character. She's never been interested in that, but it can't be ruled out entirely. Thanks, Holly, for your email. And as for the dragons, very, very suspicious that they didn't go over the biggest weapon they have on the battlefield. I think it's absolutely intentional, and it's meant to surprise us. 
Next up, we have one from Ryan in Dallas. And he says, as Big D said, a lot of people will think about this episode as being too slow. While I thoroughly enjoy anything Game of Thrones throws at me, I'd be included in that category. With the lack of a death count, minus little Ned Umber, two episodes in, everyone has set in their mind that next week will be devastating. Surely they gave us a happy episode two for the battle to happen and everything comes crashing down in episode three. However, the last battle episode was the end of season seven, Beyond the Wall. Remember the Magnificent Seven that went to capture a white and everyone was placing bets on who and how many would die? Turns out it was only Thoros, the most minor character of them all. And the battle before that, the loot train, only the Tarleys died, not even in the battle. And before that, the Battle of the Bastards, Rickon, One One, and Ramsey died, but no one during the actual battle. Those were all pre or post battle. While I certainly hope we get some heartbreaking deaths in the battle for Winterfell, we may want to pump the brakes on our expectations. We may get one or two minor character deaths, Lyanna Mormont and Podrick, I'm looking at you, but Game of Thrones may yet again subvert our expectations and not give us any real shockers. How much bloodlust do you guys think is right to want from the next episode? Keep on keeping on and try to get some sleep. Ryan from Dallas. Ryan, I don't know how you know that we're not getting sleep, but you're absolutely right. (laughs) We don't know what the hell we're doing, where we are, or what day it is. As for the body count, I got to disagree with you on this one, buddy. I think they were saving it up here. Giving us these two episodes and then not giving a body count would disappoint the audience by relieving the audience. And it's a really weird place to be in because I don't want any of these people to die. But at the same time, it's the only way the story makes any sense. I think we're going to be shocked. I'm bracing myself. And I think the rest of the audience is too. It's my secret want. And I believe that it's possible that none of our characters will die in the next episode. I really think it could happen. Some may get lost or separated. Some might be badly wounded and they might linger until the following episode. Maybe I'm just trying to be an optimist for the first time in my life, but I could imagine everybody getting through the next hour and a half. I'm just imagining the sad music playing as Winterfell falls, but everybody dying is just random people from the village. It's like, the shoemaker guy, the little girl, not even the little girl that got the soup from the onion night. She's not allowed to die. It's only people who have never had speaking roles. Maybe the one guy that's like, I'm not a soldier. That guy could die. No, it's going to be nothing but red shirts. It's going to be Dothraki. And it's going to be a bunch of the unsullied. No one, no one else dies. That's ridiculous. We're going to lose. I'm going to say we're going to lose at least half of the major characters. But if I had to bet my life, Everything I had on one character dying, Samwell Tarly is 1,000% dead. He gave up the family sword. He then says, I hope we win. He's closing the book. He knows he's not going to be there when the sun comes up the next day. My money is on Brienne of Tarth. There's no way she survives this fight. She is screwed. You can't knight a person and then have him live. No, she's already at the, she's already at the top of the mountain. There's nowhere to go but down. All right. Thanks, Ryan, for your email. Next up, we have one from Brazil. It's Sarah Ferreira. And she writes in, hey, guys, how are you? My name is Sarah, and I'm from Brazil. Some of your takes on the Instacast bugged me. This episode was as much a goodbye to the characters as it was a celebration of the power of women and foreshadowing the role I think they will have in taking down the enemy. When you guys say that Sansa was being stupid, you don't take to account that she's caring for her house, her people and the North. When you say that the scene with the little girl, when Davos and Gilly encourage her to defend the crypts is bad, 
you as men don't realize the importance of the girl's wish not being dismissed just for being a girl. No one is saying she will, in fact, defend it. She can't. She's just a little girl. But by not saying that to her, by giving her a sense that her presence is important, you're encouraging her to be brave. And that's amazing, especially when girls are told to hide and let the men handle things all the time. They didn't minimize her, and that was incredible to watch as a woman. Just wanted to leave my insights. Love the podcast. See ya, Sarah Ferreira. Oi, Sarah. To the bone? Okay, so what I'm saying here is, let's go back one by one. I remember saying that the little girl down in the that was going down into the crypts, that she actually would play a role and would probably save a bunch of people down there. Much like the little birds in King Landing played a role in the uh, explosion at... Uh, the Sept of Baylor. I did not say that Sansa was stupid. I said her choice to bring it up at that moment was not a good strategic move, was foolish. She wasn't dumb. The timing was wrong. You're facing certain death. Don't bring it up and fracture the alliance that's very fragile to begin with. Uh, and I want you to know, as far as the way I raise my daughter, I'm raising her no different than I am or would a boy. She is going to go change the tire. She is doing yard work. She is taking jujitsu. She's going to learn to defend herself. There is no difference. Every day I tell her she can do anything she wants and she should do everything. I don't want her ever to depend on a man. I don't want her to depend on anyone. She should be self-sufficient. And that's the way I'm raising her. So to think that I would view any other woman or character as any less you're completely not knowing who I am as a person because that's not the way I'm raising my daughter. As for the message about girl power, I completely agree with you, Sarah. And this is a wonderful thing that the show is doing because when we first saw Game of Thrones, one of the things that made me very uncomfortable actually was watching all these portrayals of women and they were just, they were either whores or they're being sold as property. And I was like, if this is the world we're going to be living in, I don't know how many seasons of this I can take. Kind of like the beginning of Mad Men. Mad Men seasons one and two, it's really hard to get through, but there is a payoff. As the years go by, you see these characters grow up, overcome the odds, and become strong figures. And I think that's a testament to the power of the show and also the fact that it's more than just a story about dragons and swords. First of all, I'm super thankful I wasn't around when you guys said Sansa was stupid because holy macaroni, we'd be in it then. Uh, secondly, I think that maybe Danny was just looking for a friend that was on her team. And of course, she's going to have some gender issues based on her previous experiences. And I think it's possible that maybe Danny was just trying to feel her out for maybe a potential job in the future. All right, Sarah, thanks for your email. Next up, we have one from Kevin, and it's our first crazy tinfoil of the day. Kevin writes in, hey, guys, I have a theory of the Stark family because of Uncle Benji. What if the Stark family is immune to being turned? <laughs> they change to a walker, but still have a functioning brain. What's your take? Podcast is awesome. Kevin. So, guys, I remember when Uncle Benji shows up and saves John. I don't really recall them explaining where he came from or how he is the way he is. Can you guys fill me in? Yeah, I can. So this is an um actually for Kevin. So, Kevin. In season six, episode Blood of My Blood, that's the episode that we learned that Benjamin Stark was stabbed in the gut with an ice sword by the White Walker, but the children of the forest intervened and shoved dragon glass into his chest and prevented the magic from taking hold. He said it himself, so there's no reason to think he was special or that the Starks are special. It was only the children that found him and intervened that made him still walk around, you know, quasi-living, quasi-dead. 
Big D, I'm glad you did that research because when I read this one, I was like, oh, he cracked it. The Starks have something special in their blood, too. It's not just the Targaryens. And John being Targaryen and Stark, he's going he's gonna to turn and Arya's going to turn and Sansa's going to turn and they're going to fuck shit up. The only thing I hope is that someday we get like a Dragonglass 101 tutorial because Dragonglass in the heart is what created the Night King. But then Dragonglass also acts as kind of a cure. Either the show is a bit confused or we need some kind of explanation. Yeah, so summer of 2020, HBO is going to release their new spinoff from Game of Thrones called Dragonglass, yeah. which is going to be about Dragonglass. I like it. All right, next up, we have Matthew writing in about Lady Mormont. He says, hey, Shat crew, to keep it simple and brief. I like that, Matthew. It's amazing the reactions to young Lady Mormont. With episode two at a finish, with all the theories on who is to die and how and by whose hand on who will survive right to the end, I have heard about four different theories on who will kill both Jamie and Cersei, eight different theories for Jon Snow alone. However, in all this, one thing seems to hold true, and there is such support and love for the young Lady Mormont that there would be rioting in the streets if the plot allows the character to die. Regards, Matthew. So, Matthew, there is a meme going around, and I don't know if you have seen it. It's got all the characters lined up according to the likelihood of them being killed. And you've basically got the top row, which is the very safe characters. So you got Jamie Lannister, the Hound, Bran, Tyrion, and Jon Snow. Then you got your probably safe characters like Varys and Sansa, Arya, and Daenerys. And it drops all the way down to fucked, which is Theon, <laughs> Brienne, Tormund, Jorah, and of course, Grey Worm. Not even on the chart is Lady Mormont. Like, they didn't even think to even put her on the damn chart. She is that safe. Where was Sam on that on that list? Sam is in the in danger category. And the reason being, don't you touch my beautiful fat boy. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lady Mormont definitely epitomizes the spirit and the attitude of the people of the North. It would be a real drag to... Uh, kill her off i don't think it would really do anything beyond bum us out so here's to hoping that she makes the full run also if she does grow up to ever have a sex scene i don't want to see it <laughs> no 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 next up we have one from courtney k from pa courtney writes in this season daenerys seems to be taking a turn for the worse she just seems so much more emotional than i've ever seen her in the past She's laughing and joking most of episode one, then crying and after finding out Cersei lied to her about the army in episode two. She seems irritated and obsessive with just about everything and everyone throughout the second episode. Observe her simple hand motion when interrupted at the end of her conversation with Sansa. That's some great acting right there with how she conveys such emotion with a simple gesture. Why is she so emotional all of a sudden? She's always been a rather stoic character up to this point. Is it because she's in love and love changes people? Is it because she's slowly turning mad because she's a product of incest? Is she becoming desperate and anxious now that she is so close, yet so far away from her goal of the Iron Throne? Is she pregnant? Oh, come on. I can't be the only one who thinks Danny's belly seems a bit swollen throughout the season. <laughs> it could be a combination of these things, but overall, I'm just not so satisfied with this new emotional Daenerys. Also, as a side note, why did Danny not mention the fact that Jamie charged at her during the loot train battle? Even a simple, you killed my dad and then tried to kill me comment would have been appreciated. At any rate, 
I'm sure to be a sobbing, snotty mess during next week's episode, thanks to the reminiscing and love for the characters that episode two invoked. Great episode. Thanks, guys. And have a great week awaiting the Battle of Winterfell. Best, Courtney K. from PA. Forget about Daenerys asking Jamie why he charged at her. Ask how the fuck did he survive falling to the bottom of the abyss wearing his armor? Do you remember that miraculous lifeguard save that Braun did? That's the amazing thing. Danny should want to know how he did that. All right. Thanks, Courtney, for your email. <laughs> Nothing else? Nothing else? We got to keep going, man. Come on. What do you okay, want to do? No. What else? No, you don't want to talk about the fact that Daenerys has never had these challenges. Because she's now facing the Starks. She can't. You know, what, what can she do? She can't set fire to Sansa. So this is the first time that I think she's had to face opposition on multiple fronts at one time. She might be stretched a little thin. She's got a new uh, emotional entanglement going on in her life. There's just a lot on her plate right now that I don't think she's ever had to really address this much all at once. And I agree. She is acting differently than she has before. It's going to be really great to see how that plays out or if it's just sort of a faint. Thanks, Courtney, for your email. Next up, we have one from Gillian who writes in, Bran cannot see the future. He can see the past and he can see the present, but he cannot see the future. Never could. When he saw the Night King, he said, they're coming because he saw them marching toward the wall. Every other thing he has said since has been something about the past. He is the living embodiment of the line that goes, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, or however it goes. He's that in living form. He can see what others have done to fight the Night King. He can go throughout time and see how others have fought the Night King, but in no way is he plotting out how every scenario is going to end. He cannot advise them, if you do this, then this will happen. But if you do this, that'll happen. No, he can go back in time and see what worked before and try and hope that works this time. But I don't think he sat there giving Tyrion a pep talk to make him optimistic. I think the only thing he could do is say, well, the living one once before, let's hope we can too. And that comes from Gillian. So Gillian, I have to give my second um actually of this episode, which makes me very happy. So in, in season six, episode six, there's a scene where Bran is having a, a quick flash of, uh, of, of visions. Now, most of them are events that we have seen or that were in the past. There's one that could be questionable. It's the dragon shadow flying over King's Landing. And then there's also the scene that she sees where the throne room is destroyed with ash or snow. You could make the argument that that was in the past as well, possibly that we don't know of. But there's a scene that is a, an exact screen-for-screen screen shot of a future event. It is from Season 6, Episode 10, where Cersei uses the wildfire and blows up the Sept of Baelor. There is a quick shot of the barrels exploding in the green flame. That has never happened throughout history, and it hadn't happened at that point in the show. So Bran does have the capability of seeing the future. Even though it may only be this one event, we know he has the ability. Right, Big D. The actual power that the Three-Eyed Raven has is the green sight, and the green sight is defined as being able to see things in the present, the past, or the future, or distant things that are happening right now uh, across great expanses. So he he can see in the future. Now, we may not have seen that as often as we see dives into the past, and I think it's because we're more familiar with the past. Things that are in the future might be a little more murky. And also, it's always done in a dreamlike sequence. So it may not be the exact representation of reality, but it is the rough idea of what's going to happen. Thanks, Gillian, for your email. Uh, next up, we have one from Brandon Dunn. He says, hey, guys, I listened to the Small Council episode 
and have a few things to follow up on. I'm not married to the idea of the army of the dead skipping Winterfell and marching on King's Landing. There are many good reasons it won't happen, but King B's rebuttal was reactionary and not thought out. (laughs) The Night King has, without question, been strategic the entire series. He's been north of the wall for thousands of years since his last defeat at the hands of humans, rebuilding his army with the Free Folk. Caster's male offspring, the Night King's lieutenants, and likely others performing a similar role as Caster. He pulled a dead dragon from the bottom of a frozen lake and reanimated it. He used the dragon to attack a specific portion, the least stable part of the wall, that could crumble into the sea. His pursuit of Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven, the size of his force, would easily overrun the men holding Castle Black. But he didn't just attack Castle Black with his overwhelming numbers and hope a few dead might get over the wall and start making more dead and keep moving south. The Night King has been plotting his revenge since his last defeat all those years ago. This isn't The Walking Dead. The zombies may be mindless, but they aren't directionless. And that comes from Brandon Dunn. Well, Brandon, uh, reactionary and not thought out is how I've made it for 38 years and I only need old Gene here to lend me a couple hundred bucks, maybe twice a month to get by. Anyway, (laughs) uh, while I don't believe that they are mindless and directionless, I don't think that the Night King is is playing a real chess game here. Uh, I think there's a huge gap between, uh, hey, let's take the short part of the wall and I'm going to send 32% of my army this way and the rest this way to cut them off in case they retreat. I just don't see that happening. You know, Brandon, I think a lot of the times because the Night King doesn't talk, we assume that he's like not communicating or not highly intelligent. I really honestly had a dream about five nights ago where he had lines and it was awful. And a lesser show would do that. You know, like the big bad guy would be like, all right, we're going to march on Winterfell. You know, they didn't do that. They don't make him talk. And I think it's great because it gives you this mystery about the Night King. But he's definitely communicating. And the fact that they have a structure, they have, you know, lieutenants and they have uh, ground troops and they have some that are on horseback and some that aren't. He's definitely plotting the entire Magnificent Seven move north of the wall. That was a trap. It was absolutely a trap to get himself a dragon. He knew it was happening. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a crime of opportunity where he said, oh, shit, there's a dragon in the water. I better go grab it. So I, you know, I agree with you, Brandon. He's he is a military leader. There is a strategy to it. And I can't wait to see him outsmart the humans yet again. Can we all do an impression of what we think his voice might sound like? Go for it. Big D, what do you think he's going to sound like? Hey, guys, look, everybody, go go around the other side of Winterfell and get the whites climbing the wall. We're going to do it, guys. Yay. I think his voice sounds like when you first open a freezer that's been closed for a long time and all the ice cubes kind of crack. And it's really hard for him to like push air out of his frozen lungs. I'm here for you. I just want him to sound like Krang from the Ninja Turtles. Thanks, Brandon, for your email. And what, no Krang impression for us? <laughs> Thanks, King B, for your ideas. Uh, next up, we have one from Daryl Zanro, uh, who says, Gents, I thought I'd point out the throwback. That was Tyrion overfilling Pod's goblet in Season 8, Episode 2. When Podrick and Tyrion first meet in Season 2, Episode 2, Podrick accidentally overfills Tyrion's cup with wine. So there is more to it than just the clever Tyrion defying orders once again. Great show. Great pod. Keep up the good work. Daryl, I got to tell you something, and this is embarrassing. These guys don't know it yet. But when I read your email, 
I started crying again because <laughs> no. it was such a cool. That's such a cool callback, man. I, it broke my heart. I was like, God, they did that. Really? That's beautiful. OK, I'm going to make our listeners a promise before we start recording next week. If it goes the way I think it will, Gene will probably be crying. Before we hit record, so I'm going to sneak in the record button and try to get him. <laughs> that would be a great sound effect to have, but he will cry. Yeah, I think it's going to be the two of you on the Instacast with me just no. moaning in the background, petting my dog. <laughs> Curled up on the floor. It's so sad. All right. Thanks, Daryl, for your email. Uh, next up, we have one from Zach D., a longtime listener, and he writes in, I am not sure I've seen anything like this on TV. Has there been another show that has taken a whole episode to let you just hang out with your favorite characters, especially this late in the game when there is this much on the line? Even though we didn't get any action, I still felt the suspense and the terror waiting on the army of the dead. I felt like I was a soldier at Winterfell, walking into different rooms and seeing how everyone is preparing for the upcoming battle. We had a group of friends around a fire shooting the shit. We had our fearless Night's Watch brothers taking one last watch on the wall. This gave me chill bumps. Whoever is the last, burn the rest of us. The young among us were enjoying the fruits of being young. Down below, we had our fiery leaders stirring up drama for after the battle, almost coming to an argument about Iron Throne claims. This was so much, and I know in the future will be the episode that many go to to spend a little more time with friends we have made on this show. A Night in the Seven Kingdoms, of course, also makes me think of the dunk and egg stories that take place in Westeros about 100 years before our current story. And we know from George R.R. R. Martin that Brienne is king to Sir Duncan the Tall, who would have Egg, Aegon V, squire for him and go to be Lord Commander of the Kingsguard somewhere down the line. In his story, he plays a knight, but we have no proof of his knighthood, even though he is probably the best candidate for a knight because he is so chivalrous. So getting to see the person who is most knightly in this series get knighted and not just knighted, but knighted by the golden hand just had me standing in applause. Bravo. Without overdoing it, Game of Thrones did it again. They have set all the pieces up for the battle, true, but also afterward. We finally have Daenerys and Jon in the crypts, and the reveal we have been waiting on since season one happens. Danny acts exactly how anyone would. Her reaction was so real to it. And then the horn blows. This is one plot point I truly hope doesn't get blown over. I want to see some true problems come out of this because in all of George R.R. R. Martin's history, these things don't end with weddings. They end in fire and blood. Just look up the Dance of Dragons or the Blackfire Rebellions. Targaryen throne squabbles are never as easy as falling in love and getting married. Plus, a lot of symbolism lines up with the Dance of Dragons. The female claimant, Rhaenyra, were the Blacks. Danny's dragon is black. King Aegon III's side were the Greens. And Jon, or Aegon's dragon, is green. I know there isn't time for it, but man, would that be a way to end it. And that comes from Zach D. What happened to Zach D.? Is is this the same guy who wrote Harry Stamper's a goddamn American hero? I don't want to hear nothing less of that. There's nothing you can't fix with a shotgun and a roll of duct tape. Isn't that Zach Davis? It is the it is the <laughs> very same Zach D. Uh, Game of Thrones has changed him. Man. To answer your question as to whether or not we'd seen anything like this before, spending time with our favorite characters was so much on the line, I would say, yes, uh, Seinfeld finale. I was thinking The Breakfast Club, but that's more film than TV. There you go. All right. Thanks, Zach, for your email. Next up, we have one from Ken L., who is writing about the line of succession. He says, I'm here to offer up an um, actually, but not to you guys, 
No, my um actually is directed right at the showrunners. One of the most significant scenes in the episode is the one where John tells Danny about his true identity and superior claim to the Iron Throne. In response, Daenerys notes that John is, quote, the last male heir of House Targaryen. I've watched this scene twice over. It's clear that Danny is really emphasizing the word male to imply that John's gender is the reason his claim to the throne is stronger. This is entirely incorrect under every method of succession in Westeros. John has the stronger claim regardless of his and Danny's gender. In fact, if John was a woman and Daenerys was a man, nothing would change and Fem John would still be first in line. This is because the line of succession always follows from the Mad King to Rhaegar to all of Rhaegar's children before ever reaching Rhaegar's siblings, Daenerys or Viserys. Look at the British royal family as a great real-world analogy. Prince Harry is behind his father, Prince Charles, then his elder brother, Prince William, then behind Prince William and Kate Middleton's eldest child, Prince George, then behind Will and Kate's second child, Princess Charlotte. In this analogy, Charles is the Mad King, Prince William is Rhaegar, Prince George is Jon Snow, and Prince Harry is Danny. Hell, even a Disney movie gets this right. Look at The Lion King. Jon Snow is Simba, and Danny is Scar. And that comes from Ken L. Ken, you're absolutely right. And Ken backed it up with charts. He actually made <laughs> us a chart about with Andal inheritance law and then Targaryen royal inheritance laws <laughs> and then Dornish inheritance law. So he's got all of his bases covered. Ken, you're absolutely right. And I think it's really great. I didn't catch it. Did you guys? It's not like this. No, th- this is crazy. Well, I'm, I'm going to post these pictures. Uh, I want to know what he's doing during his day. Is he like, is he a lawyer? Do we know what he does? That's what the L stands for. It's Ken Law. Hmm. All right. Thanks, Ken, for your emails. They always bring a smile to our face. Specializes in fantasy law. Yeah, fantasy law. I like it. (laughs) Ken L, fantasy lawyer. All right. Next up, we have one that we promised on the deep dive. It comes from Ash Laffley, and it's about Jenny's song or Jenny of Oldstone. And Ash writes in, I know that some of you are not book readers, but there is a big moment in this song that is a nugget for those of us that read the series thus far, especially A Storm of Swords. And the line reads, High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. The show has given us most of the songs we hear in the books. Think Reigns of Castamere is one example, but this one we have yet to be given until now, on the eve of the most important battle of the series. Now let's talk about the ghost of Highheart. The ghost of Highheart is a witch of the woods who has dreams that tell the future. In order to obtain a reading, her patrons had to pay in the form of a song. When this one is sung or begun to be sung, she begins to cry. It tells of Jenny, who had a love affair with Duncan Targaryen. Duncan gave up the throne and a marriage to a Baratheon to marry her, and that is how the Mad King actually made his eventual way to the throne. The only other detail that is of import is that when Jenny came to the throne, she brought a witch of her own with her that some believe was one of the children of the forest. We find out, thanks to Barristan Selmy, that because of Duncan not taking the throne, we not only got the Mad King eventually, but we got John. We know that King Aegon V tried to bring back dragons and lots of people died in a giant fire, Jenny herself most likely, as Duncan was also killed in it, at the Targaryen summer home. It was that fire that gave us the birth of Prince Rhaegar, Jon's dad and Danny's older brother. Further, the ghost of Highheart, who is most likely the clairvoyant witch that Jenny brought with her, predicted that Azor Ahai would come from the line of Aerys Targaryen, the Mad King. He would have never been king without Duncan abdicating the throne and without his love of Jenny. Finally, there's a connection with Rhaegar himself. 
Lots of people, myself included, believe that the song Rhaegar sang at a feast that made Lyanna Stark cry was Jenny's song, perhaps written by Rhaegar. That is when they began to fall in love. So the song is maybe the reason they got together, bringing Jon into this world. Thus, Jenny's song is connected to how the Mad King got the throne, Daenerys's father and Jon's grandfather, Jon's parents got together, and the Azor Ahai prophecy. I think it is a huge gift to us, the viewer, to tell us what is to come and that Jon is not just a Targaryen, but the prince who was promised. And that comes from Ash Lafley of the Dana Buckler Show. Ash, Big D did bring this up during the deep dive, and you immediately hit up on Twitter after hearing it and said, oh, that's not all. Bring in the uh, prophecy. And I'm glad that you explained it so beautifully. I think that bringing those lines all together absolutely makes sense. The only part I would disagree with is I feel that Jon Snow is just too obvious a promised prince. I love the theories out there that are pointing to someone else if a prophecy is fulfilled at all. You know, things like Jorah Mormont or other characters that would surprise us. I think in stories like this, it's never quite the one that you believe. But other listeners have written in and said that prophecies in this show seem to show us misguided belief systems and that they don't always come through. Or when they do, they betray the person who believes in the prophecy. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But thank you so much for taking the time to write this. As always, just a an incredibly rich email. And I encourage everyone to go read the whole thing at shadowntv.com. All right, next up, we have one from Desiree. Desiree writes in, hey guys, love the podcast. My sister and I both listen while we're at work and then get together for dinner to debrief on Tuesday nights. So thank you for being a part of our little tradition. So one thing that I always bring up that we have not really found a good explanation for yet is this, why now? Why is the Night King and the White Walkers emerging from wherever they have been all these years to come and eliminate mankind now? What was the catalyst for them to build up this army of the dead when they have been dormant for years? And that comes from Desiree. So then we also got an email from Chrissy Norman, and she said, Hello, I'm obsessed with your podcast, but unfortunately I got there a bit late to the game. So I'm wondering if you've ever talked about how Gilly's baby may be the subject of the Night King's quest. Craster's son were always sacrificed to the whites, but little Sam still lives. Could his life be needed to complete the general's lineup? Could he be the demise of everyone hiding in the crypt, including Tyrion? So I think Chrissy's bringing up the only real event that we saw in the show that could trigger coming south. We know that they'd had an agreement with man. You don't come north. We won't come south. And the humans kept breaking it. They, the, the brothers kept sending rangers north. You had the free folk. Uh, so it could have been just that either. They were waiting to complete all of Craster's sons. They wanted to build up the army to a size that could actually accomplish whatever the Night King's mission is. But the only real event that I can think of that would have been a trigger could have been Craster's last son, the 100th, going south. Can you guys think of anything else? I've got two big ones. One is Bran getting marked. So Bran goes north. He's, he's the three-eyed raven. He gets marked. That brings down the protections of the cave he flees south of the wall the night king's coming for him it's that one's pretty straightforward the other one is the birth of dragons daenerys brings dragons in the world the night king mobilizes and comes south it could be that the dragons are are the trigger it's a it's a wish to eradicate the magic answer the magic or be emboldened by the magic i think those are all possibilities or it could be little sam thanks desiree for your email next up we have one from linus and this is our first um actually of the week. Uh, Linus writes in, um, actually, 
it looks like there are hundreds of White Walkers left, not only the 13 minus the dead ones we saw in season four. You said that you only counted 11 White Walkers in the end scene. You were probably looking at, and then he shows us an image. But if you look at the same scene a few seconds later, you can see that there are probably hundreds of White Walkers left. Look in the far background of the scene. There are loads of White Walkers on horses. We have never seen Whites riding on horses. We also know that Craster gave away all his sons to the White Walkers. Gilly's son with Craster was his 100th son. So Craster gave away 99 sons to the White Walkers. Thank you. Love the podcast. Best regards, Linus. I I think in the deep dive, we address this. When I said this was the Instacast. And we are, as the episode ends, we are running out of the room to our computers and hitting record. So it did look like there was 11. I couldn't see the line. But we quickly corrected this in the deep dive. I thought you were actually being generous with the 11. I was like, that's eh, not like seven, <laughs> but apparently hundreds. So we are fucked. Thanks, Linus, for your email. Next up, we have one from Cassandra. She says, hey, guys, um, actually, I think the Night King can bring back whomever the fuck he wants at any point of decomposition. Go back to when Jojen died. Skeletons were bursting out from under the ice. And that comes from Cassandra Plank, who then included images. Okay, so Cassandra, out of respect for you, you know, because you're one of our good listeners and you know, we've gone back and forth here a couple of times. I went back and watched the episode and I'm embarrassed to say it is Jason and the Argonauts. It was Clash of the Titans. These were, it, maybe they had 5% meat on their bones. They essentially were skeletons. There was no connective tissue. So they don't need to have any muscle that would provide self-propulsion. It's all magic. So maybe we will see complete skeletons coming out of the crypt. I got to give this one to you. You're right. And Cassandra, I got to bow down to the fact that you use the words whomever and fuck in the same sentence. That is some brilliant writing. Next up, we have one from Armando from the Bay Area. And he says, uh, what's up, guys? In Sunday night's Instacast, you reference the episode title as The Rightful Queen um actually my hbo app is referencing it as a knight of the seven kingdoms which one is the correct title also where did you get that title from awesome podcast can't wait for the deep dive keep up the good work guys and that's from longtime listener armando from the bay area so armando i'll I'll get this one for you i think everybody has seen on hbo go that they don't have the title when it first airs it's only the episode number so this was episode 69 So when we jump on the computer for the Instacast, we'll do a quick Google search to see what's the title. And what came up was the the Rightful Queen. And that originated from a leak that we subsequently figured out that Amazon Prime in Germany accidentally leaked the episode early on Sunday. And there was a second leak, which was from uh, a French channel that leaked the episode title and description and synopsis. And the French episode had the translation of Rightful Queen. So in between those two combinations, people trying to guess, we came up with Rightful Queen. Still sounds good, but it was not the correct one. And we quickly fixed it on the deep dive. And it was funny because Big D, you even asked me, what's the episode title? I said, The Rightful Queen. You said, where the fuck did you get that? <laughs> that like, the internet, stupid. <laughs> I don't remember that. Wrong. Thanks, Armando, for your email. Uh, next up, we have one from Vanessa, and that's our final um actually of the night. She says, uh, hey there, I'm a longtime listener and big fan of your podcast ever since Westworld, but this is an I'm very unhappy with you guys email. 
So you're well aware that you have listeners from Europe, and some of us prefer not to stay up until the middle of the night to see Game of Thrones, but rather enjoy the episode in the morning or later during the day when they are well rested. So this morning I woke up very excited and joyous because today would be the day to watch episode two. So imagine my frustration and anger when the first thing that I see in my Facebook newsfeed are the following words, <laughs> quote, two episodes and no major battles, no major deaths. It's true. And it's glorious. In case you don't recognize it, that's your Facebook post about the Instacast. That's right. You guys spoiled episode two for me. Shame on you. Picture Septa and Ella now. Not cool. So please, could you show some respect for your non-US listeners and give us 24 hours before you spoil everything in literally the first five words of your post? Thanks and keep up the otherwise great work. Greetings from Portugal, Vanessa. Okay, Vanessa, we would all love to sleep late, you know, go to bed early and wake up fresh and watch the episode. By the time I'm done posting it on Sunday, it's 2 a.m. But I do feel your pain, and we didn't go on Facebook and intentionally publish it. Lipson, who is our audio host, it posts to Facebook automatically. So if you want to get mad at somebody, it might be Gene for choosing those two sentences as the opening description of the episode. Yeah, I'll try to be less spoilery. I thought it was being non-spoilery. I didn't say anything about the fact that what did happen. I just said what didn't happen. So I will try to dial it back a little bit, Vanessa. So, Vanessa, you don't want episode three to say, wow, Night King went to King's Landing. Nobody saw that coming. (laughs) I would argue that if we didn't do it, the next guy is gonna. I'm surprised when I finish the episode, as soon as I pick up my phone and look at Twitter, there's already a vast host of responsive memes and jokes about the episode. Someone's going to ruin something for you. None of us gets to enjoy anything firsthand anymore. Also, Vanessa, all psychologists agree, and life coaches as well, that you should never wake up and look directly at Facebook. Take an hour for yourself, have some breakfast, do your yoga, meditate, walk the dog, and just, you know relax into your morning maybe start the morning with game of thrones don't look at facebook but we will make an effort to uh, be less spoilery with the episode descriptions in the instacast uh but i can't make any promises about the deep dive john snow dead never saw that coming (laughs) we told you not to go into the crypt (laughs) yeah exactly all right thanks vanessa and everybody who wrote in we loved reading your emails now we'll move on to our voicemails Uh, Big D, how many voicemails do we have this week? Uh, So again, we got a bunch of voicemails and we were able to pick a few. Uh, And our first one comes from Rachel from D.C. Hey, guys, this is Rachel from D.C. So in the deep dive, Big D speculated about how the Jenny of Old Stone song potentially alluded to either John or Danny giving up their claims to the throne for love. And others are speculating that Danny will turn on John. But I'm not sure either will happen. We've already had Davos plant the seed about a potential marriage. So what I think is likely is that Danny will, in the age-old tradition of Targaryens, decide that to keep the throne and keep John on her side, commit incest and marry her nephew. John will obviously say no because he's too honorable to marry his aunt. But there's one circumstance in which I think John would say yes, and that's if Danny is pregnant. I'm surprised that no one is talking about this. They made a point last season to mention Danny's barrenness, and John went so far as to question whether she was right to believe the witch who murdered her husband. John never wanted to produce a bastard, so would he marry his aunt to prevent that from happening to his child? I think he would. 
And if they do have a child, I think it's likely that both of them will die and that if there's a throne left after all of this, that child inherits it, perhaps raised and guided by Sansa and Tyrion. Thanks for your podcast. I love it. Keep up the good work. So if Daenerys is pregnant, it would take nine months. Do we think we're going to get like an Avengers post-credit scene where Daenerys is pregnant, she gives birth, then she dies, then the baby kind of is, is groomed to be the future king or queen? Maybe she lays an egg. Ah, oh. dragon. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, you get a three men and a baby scenario where she dies off, but like Tyrion and John and Varys are oh, raising the child. No, here's the thing is I think what's hilarious about all these conversations is that we're like, how are they going to resolve this? How are they going to decide who sits on the throne? And nobody's talking about the fact that like one of them could just conveniently die. And then problem solved, right? Like, or both of them could die. So I don't think, based on what we know about Targaryens, that there will be a peaceful resolution uh, to all this. But this is certainly a plausible solution. Like, a reasonable person would say, hey, listen, you've got a claim to the throne. I got a claim to the throne. We're in love with each other. Let's get married. (laughs) Makes perfect sense to me. But this is Game of Thrones. Exactly. And like Bran said, how do we know there is an after? So why are we why are we rushing to this? Let's get to that point. And and you might have what a couple hundred thousand subjects. Everybody else is dead. Woo woo. You know I'm the queen of the Iron Throne. There's like a handful of people. Come on, let's just wait until it happens. But uh, I think they'll work it out. Uh, our next one comes from our good friend Jesse in Seattle. Hi guys, this is for Westworld. Uh, this is Jesse in Seattle again. And this week, I'm going to try to get it all into three minutes on this phone message instead of having to call back. So, uh, first off, on who will die uh, this coming episode, uh, you mentioned a couple of people that I don't think will die um, for sure. Uh, Arya can't die yet. Her story arc isn't finished because the Red Woman saw that they would meet again. So she can't die yet. I don't think Jamie's arc is finished either. Uh, I think it finishes with the death of Cersei. Uh, most likely at his hands due to the Maggie the Frog prophecy that has been picked at to death by everybody in the world. We know that it's supposed to be the little brother. Uh, it could mean Tyrion. Uh, it could be somebody who's not even a Lannister, who just happens to be someone's little brother. But it also could be Jaime, who is also her little brother, her, her younger brother, as he was the second twin to be born. Uh, this would mean that uh, she dies, and then he also dies probably at the same time in the arms of the woman he loves like he said he wants to. I'm fairly certain uh, that Dan and Johnny are both going to survive the next battle or this coming battle. Um, I think the conflict about who, who's going to claim the Iron Throne needs to play out a little longer. Uh, everyone else, as far as I can tell, is free game uh, to die and I honestly think that some that people like uh, Brienne of Tarth uh, is almost certain going to die. Uh, there's a couple of people that I'm, I'm pretty sure are going to be dead this next episode, and Brienne's definitely one of them. I think her, her arc is finished. Uh, you guys talked about the Crips of Winterfell. Well, the Crips, um, I agree with you, are not safe. Uh, we know from the book that the Crips of Winterfell exist on more than one level, and they extend beyond the wall. 
And in fact, there's some evidence that the crypts were carved out of the root system of a petrified weirwood tree. So this would make it possible that there's another entrance point that maybe the army of the dead will use uh, in order to get into Winterfell to breach the walls. But we also know that they were made by Bran the Builder, who also built the wall. So it's also possible that the crypts are able to keep White Walkers out, just like the cave of the Three-Eyed Raven. Uh, and there's every reason to think that magic might be involved. Uh, I think it's possible that the crypts will serve as an initial fallback point uh, for our band of plucky heroes, uh, the ones that don't die anyway. Uh, thank you guys very much for uh, having me on the show last week. It was really an honor. I really enjoy your guys' podcast. Thanks. Okay, so that was that was Jesse. And I think Jesse's come up with a great sequel to Game of Thrones. You know, HBO needs something. Dan and Johnny? It could be a little romantic comedy, a little spinoff. I just want to thank Jesse for also listening to Westworld and bringing it up uh, during this. So we work very hard on that podcast as well. As you haven't checked it out and you're a Westworld fan, we do have a chat on TV Westworld, two seasons worth, in fact. Uh, but Jesse brings up a really good point here is I was talking earlier about the crypts and how everyone says we're going to go to the crypts. The crypts are safe. And I was like, how could they be safe? You're just going to go hide underground and hope that it all blows over. I totally forgot that the crypts go down level after level after level. We're only at the top level of the crypts, and there are many levels below and just generation after generation of Stark, and it is a vast tunnel system that does span out quite a bit. So I think that the living know a lot more about the crypts than we know, and they're referring to it as the crypts as some sort of a singular idea uh, sort of a bunker, but in fact, it is uh, either an escape route or a safe haven uh, that can go quite far. And the fact that there is a link with Bran the Builder, who also built the wall, makes me think that there are certain safeguards or provisions in there. Um, I'm excited to get down there. And we know from the trailer that we see Arya running scared through what appears to be the crypts. So this battle, or at least a part of it, will go underground. And that seems like the most terrifying setting of all. Agreed. Our next call comes from Bill in Toronto. Hey, guys. Uh, regarding the Cersei's dubious pregnancy, I don't think she ever was pregnant, to tell you the truth. And uh, Euron just did the nasty with her. You'd think he would notice if she had a bit of a bump there. And uh, pregnant women's tummies are not soft like fat. They're hard like basketball. So... <laughs> not something you would, you would miss if you're involved in, in the nasty. So I think perhaps uh, he, she does want to maybe get a baby in, in her just to prolong her legacy, but I don't think she ever really was. So in my opinion, I don't know. It's a guess. All right. Bye. I'm just praying that Bill is an OBGYN. So be, <laughs> like, this is the guy I want checking out my pregnant <laughs> wife would be... So you see, a pregnant woman's tummy is firm, like a basketball. When you're involved in doing the nasty, just, it was the it was the it was the greatest explanation of it. Uh, but I do unfortunately, Bill, have to disagree. I think the show is giving us every indication that Cersei is in fact pregnant. Tyrion saying it, Jamie saying it. She's not drinking the wine sometimes. She is drinking the wine sometimes. My money is on definitely pregnant. Uh, and uh, whether that relates to a prophecy. I don't know, but I think they're really, really trying to point us in that direction. 
So I think it was Jesse last week that did the detailed breakdown of the timeline saying how much time has passed since the last time that Jamie and Cersei had had done the nasty together, as, uh, as, as Bill says. As someone who has laid and done the nasty with a pregnant woman, at about six or seven months, without clothes, you would notice it. Gene, you mentioned that your mother wore the same size clothes her whole pregnancy. If you were to have seen her in a, in a nude state, I did. You, I was inside her. Okay. Well, let's just say your, your father, he would have noticed. You wouldn't no, he have died before that. Well, before you were born? Yeah. No, did he? Yeah, my mom wasn't showing when my dad died. He never knew she was pregnant. Oh, my. Now I feel terrible. How did I not know this? Thanks for bringing it up, Big D. Are there any other family tragedies I need to stay clear of? My brother died of leukemia when I was two. Okay, I, I knew that one. He stuck Man, with me I, as a best friend. Oh, that's that's pretty rough. Okay, but, well, it's terrible. I'm sorry I said that. I didn't even know that. I should be a better friend. But no, but but it's a good example, though. Yeah, but you'd be able to tell. There's a difference. And and for Euron to pat her on the stomach and say, I'm going to put a baby in there, he'd pat her on the stomach and go, huh, maybe, well, maybe there's a baby in there now. I would argue that one... uh aspect we don't really talk about is just the detail and the amazing nature of the costumes and the dresses, especially that the Queens wear. It might just be an aesthetic issue. This is her last hurrah in these last few episodes. They probably don't want to throw her in a muumuu and have her showing off a baby bump. This is her last opportunity to be this cold hearted dagger, sharp ice cold killer queen. I don't think it's necessary to show off a baby bump for this story. Maybe we'll get a quick scene of Euron going back to the silence and be like, she wasn't quite what I thought she'd be. She needs to stay off the wine. She's got a bit of a belly. Where the fuck is Yara? (laughs) Oh, get her back here. Because she escaped. (laughs) And our next voicemail comes from Melissa from Tempe. Hello, On the Throne podcast. This is Melissa from Tempe. I just listened to the Instacast and I had a thing I wanted to ask you. That little girl talking to Sir Davos we still don't know where Melisandre is, right? She went home, but she said she was going to come back and die in this land. So could she have sent that little girl? Could she be that little girl? She's a witch. Let me know what you guys think. Love the podcast. Thanks. Bye. First of all, Melissa, thanks for calling in. Uh, Carrie Gross and I were actually out dancing one night. We're on the dance floor, and we this scream, Are you Gene Lyons and Carrie Gross? And it was Melissa, and Carrie was shocked. She thought that Melissa only knew us from the podcast and somehow recognizes that way. No, Melissa's an old friend, so she she recognized me and then assumed that that was Carrie from Photographs. So anyway, uh, thanks for calling us out and giving Carrie the scare of her life. As for the Melisandre connection, uh, I did point out that this little girl in the soup scene with the Onion Knight Uh, seemed to be interesting with the scar on her face and wondered if there was any sort of a connection. Interesting fact about Melisandre, Jon Snow says, if I ever see you up north, I'm going to kill you. So if she did show her face, she probably wouldn't show her face. And we do know that she has the capability to shapeshift. So possibility, but I think the smart money is on this girl playing a role, but not being the Red Priestess. Okay, and our final email comes from our good friend down in Mexico City, Maria Molina. Hello, shout on TV people. I hope I made the cut. This is for Game of Thrones. This is Maria Molina calling in from Mexico City. Could it be possible that perhaps Arya is our secret weapon? 
could Arya take the fate of one of the, you know, knight lieutenants or whatever? I mean, her weapon even looks a lot like that of the knight army. Could she be wanting that specific weapon to take the fate of a knight white walker or whatever and kill one of the white walkers would come closer. I mean, it also would explain why, you know, they have that council and they ask, well, where's Arya in Santos is probably lurking around. Why wasn't she there? What is she preparing for? Anyways, just a thought. Um, you guys are doing great. Hope this makes it in. If not, at least you'll hear it. Um, and know that you have a loyal fan here in Mexico. Okay. Can't wait for the deep guy. Bye. Adios. So I understand that we're dealing with a show with dragons, uh, people being brought back from the dead. Uh, there's a lot of mystical, you know, we just have to hand wave that it's oh, okay. Just don't question too many things. Would it be disappointing if Arya in this, in the battles to come last four episodes, if she uses the, the faceless man, if she starts taking people's shapes, is that not just totally the biggest cop out? I would hate it. I actually tweeted earlier today about this very concept. The show has made a landing. It has become grounded. We are, yes, there is an army of the dead. Yes, there are dragons. But there is a fatalistic viewpoint that's been examined from episodes one and two, where these people are resigned to their fates. They understand the odds are against them, and many people will die. This is war brought to us in a real way, the way classic Game of Thrones would operate. I remember a Game of Thrones prior to all the magic, prior to dragons being bored, and it was vicious, and it was horrific, and it was real. Ned Stark got his head chopped off, spoiler alert, and that was that. There was no bringing back people like, oh, he, he can't be just dead. No, he's dead. That is this show, The Red Wedding. Granted, there's Lady Stoneheart in the books, but for the purpose of this series, Cat Stark, dead. Rob Stark, dead and so i yeah i don't want to see that what i don't want is gimmicks i don't want bran working into control a dragon i don't want Arya switching out faces but it's not about what i want and and they could surprise us in a lot of ways i do think that there is a very real possibility and people are going to hate this that in the first wave attack on winterfell Arya falls and it would be the most devastating thing that <laughs> yeah. we could think of but she's an 18 year old woman of small stature going into battle with a tiny weapon against the deadliest force that this world's ever seen. Yeah, I also think that they've done, they've put a lot of effort into proving how capable she is as a warrior, whether she's showing Gendry her skills with a bow and arrow or throwing the dragon glass daggers into the wall or seeing her scars. Her skill would be cheapened if she uses a trick, a parlor trick, a disguise to sneak up. That's not the warrior that they've demonstrated so effectively the last two episodes she is. I think it would it would kind of cheapen that, that the only way she could do it was to use this trick. Thank you, Maria, so much for your voicemail. And thank you for everyone who called in to 914-719-SHAD and left us their thoughts. Again, you can catch our emails and voicemails at shadontv.com under the small council section of the Game of Thrones section. That concludes this week's episode of Shad on TV. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at ShadonTV. On Facebook, just search for Shad on TV Podcasts. The website is ShadonTV.com. If you would like to email us for the small council, hit us up at host at ShadonTV.com. Just a reminder, because we do have to cut off at some point to get these all read and prepared for the podcast, please have them all in by 5 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday of the week so that we can process them all. 
sooner if you can. I know a lot of them have been rolling in before the Instacast, between the Instacast and the Deep Dive. After the Deep Dive, we appreciate all of them coming in. Again, that email address is host at shadontv.com. Wherever fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please leave a review. That helps the podcast grow. If you'd like to support us financially, we appreciate the contribution. You can go through PayPal, Venmo, or Amazon. Just go to chatontv.com slash PayPal slash Venmo or slash Amazon. And if you'd like to help us find sponsors, go to chatontv.com slash survey. Take that survey and it'll help us find sponsors that match your interests. In addition, if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, but you can't wait until the Instacast on Sunday, uh, you can check out our sister podcast, Shat the Movies. That's at shatthemovies.com, where we review 80s and 90s movies. And King B and I are wrapping up this week our eight-episode run of American Gods. It's all there to find, also on shatontv.com. On behalf of my co-hosts, The King B and Big D, Dick Ebert, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Sunday night for episode three of Game of Thrones, season eight, Instacast. Everybody bring your box of Kleenex. I suspect we're going to need it.